Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here in God's house today. I hope everyone's doing well. We're going to dive here into the Word in a minute, but uh, let me just start and open this up with prayer. <clears throat> Father God, we come before you humbly today, Lord. We come before you with grateful hearts, Lord, for all that you've done for us. And we come before you, Lord, asking now that you would send your spirit, Lord, that your spirit would be with us in this room, that your spirit would guide our conversation today, that your spirit would, would <clears throat> help us and to, to have a proper, right understanding of your word, Lord, and to handle it with, with, with absolute, absolute respect, God. And um, we just ask that you're, we would hear from you today and nobody else, God. Thank you for the time and the blessing we have to gather together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Shortly after Amy, my wife and I started uh, a ministry for kids in South Africa. We traveled there, and we had this great pleasure of meeting this woman. <clears throat> Excuse me. Her name is Mavis, and she's a nurse and a very committed, godly Christian woman. She was assisting a doctor that we were working with there at the time uh, in trying to set up a health care center. Um, and, and I went and I visited and spent some time with Mavis and, and was really touched by her. And just before I was going to leave uh, to come back to America, she pulled me aside. And she said, you know, Alec, we're very lucky that you and all of the supporters in America are, are providing so many resources to us, you know, money and, 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 and other things. But, but you know what? Much more so than the money, much more so than the things you bring, what touches me most is that you would come all the way over here just to be with us here in the middle of nowhere. You know, the power of proximity struck me in that moment. If I have to be honest, I was there mostly to make sure the money was spent right, okay? Um, but as is often the case, my purpose and God's purpose differed. See, Mavis made it clear to me uh, that proximity matters. You can love people with money. You can love people with programs. You certainly can love people with prayer. But few things show love more than proximity. So one week past Easter, as we sit here today, I think it's appropriate that we should be considering this. Why? First, because Jesus could not have saved us without becoming proximate to us, without coming down into our world. And second, because the command that Jesus gave that was most proximate in time to the cross and the resurrection was this. Go and bring the good news to the world. So it's entirely appropriate that we should, this week after Easter, uh, consider what God's calling, that, consider the calling that God has placed on every Christian, the calling to go. So we're going to look at that today. In particular, what we're going to look at is what Jesus says about it and what Jesus shows us about it and how he goes about going, sharing the gospel. <clears throat> And what we'll see is that Jesus made the gospel proximate. He brought it near to us so that we should do the same uh, for others. The first question we have to ask, though, is why? Why go? It's rather simple, really. We go because he told us to. God commands it. It's this little thing called the Great Commission. Have you heard of it? Well, let's take a look at it together, just in case you haven't. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. First thing I want you to notice there is the series of alls that Jesus uses. First, he says, all authority has been given to him, meaning that the sphere sphere of his authority, it includes heaven and earth. He is the absolute authority above all else. So we should probably listen to him and do what he says. He also demands that we make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that he commanded and knowing that he is with us always. So in this command, therefore, we see complete authority And from complete authority comes a complete calling involving all people to teach a complete gospel, and it's accompanied by a complete promise of his. It's all there. But I want to look a little more deeply, and I want to look in particular at this one little word, go, because sometimes huge things come in small packages, and this is one of those times. Now, if you're familiar with, if you were familiar with the Greek text, you'd realize that in the Greek, this word is actually a participle. And it's a past tense participle. What does that mean? What's a participle? I always learned it as a thing with ing at the end. Participle is Latin for stick an ing on the end, right? (laughs) It's a past tense. So really, the the, the direct translation of go here is having gone, which has led a lot of people to, not a lot, but some people to conclude that it's not really a command. That having gone, it really should be read, well, having gone or as we go, we should make disciples. Um, there's a little problem with that. And that problem is probably what every single one of your Bible says. It says go. So how do we get around that? Well, first of all, there's three participles in these participles in, in, that you'll see in these verses. There's going, there's baptizing, and teaching. And they all relate to the command, make disciples. And that command in Greek governs. It gives this force of a command to all of these participles. In other words, one way of looking at this would be to say, we are to make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. What's tricky, though, is that for some reason, the participle for go is at the beginning of the sentence. Okay, now I know you all have been, or many of you, probably most of you, have been coming to this church for a long time, and you probably already know the significance of What's the significance in Greek of of a word at the beginning of a sentence? I will, I'm going to tell Marty on all of you. (laughs) It's emphatic. Thank you. It's emphatic. Go. When Jesus says go, he says, I really mean it. You got to go. It's not a choice. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. Whatever we do, we must treat the great, we must not treat the great commission like it's a great suggestion. But the command, like all of God's commands, is not solely for his pleasure. It's also for our joy. And this is what we need to get from this. You think about how amazing it is that God would use us to spread his message to a world that desperately needs it, desperate for the good news. In essence, it won't happen without us. Think about what Paul says in in, in, uh, Romans 10. He says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear him without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Put another way, unless we go, nations will not hear. And unless nations hear, they will not believe. And unless nations believe, they will not be saved. No pressure there. 
The larger point, though, comes in Isaiah, in the reference to Isaiah. It's from Isaiah 52, 7, which says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Amen? Your God reigns. This is not only a command, this go, brothers and sisters. It is a lovely, beautiful command. It's a life-giving command. So that's why we go. So let's pivot here now and consider, I want to look now at how we go, and we're going to look at Jesus as an example because uh, he, he gave us many examples of how to minister to others. But I want to look at only one today in particular, and that's his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, that's where we're going to be. Now, there's a lot in these verses, and we don't have time to touch on it all. So as I go through it, I'm only going to focus particularly on, on what Jesus shows us with regard to, to evangelism, with regard to, to sharing the gospel. Um, but in the end of the day, this account is all about that. It's all about that. All right, so he left Judea and went uh, away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sukkar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. To begin with, the text tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why, you might ask. If you look at a map of uh, Judea and Samaria, um, you might say, well, it's practical. Some, it was practical. Samaria is right in between where Jesus was going in Judea uh, to, um, and Galilee. The problem with that is that this is... Um, also hostile territory for Jews because there was this long-standing animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, which you're probably familiar with. So going through Samaria was not the most obvious choice. You see, the Samaritan people came out of intermarriages between Assyrian invaders and Israelites uh, that had remained after the most Israelites were deported in 722 B.C., right? So when the Jews returned to that land around 465 B.C., this bitterness developed between these two groups. And it was partly because the Israelites refused to accept the Samaritans' help in rebuilding the temple, as we read in Ezra 4, 2, and 3. In fact, the Samaritans set up their own center of worship on Mount Gerizim, uh, and we're, we're going to get to that. But the point here is that the antagonism persisted to Jesus' day. As such, a Jew wouldn't go through Samaria unless he or she was truly pressed to. It's kind of like... 395 or Route 66 at rush hour, you just don't go there if you can avoid it in any way, shape, or form. But we don't see any pressing practical reason for Jesus to go into Samaria. So his reason must have been divine in nature, and indeed it was. He had a larger purpose, and we know this from Acts 1.8. We know that his purpose and his mission was to bring salvation to all people, right? Even the Samaritans. So what does he do? He goes to them. He goes to them. He seeks proximity with the person he wants to reach. And he goes out of his comfort zone to do so. Now, I want you to note that the proximity he seeks is not just about reducing physical distance. His concern is spiritual distance. You see, the woman at the well, like Nicodemus in chapter 3, she might as well, she might have been right in the same town as him. Sometimes the person with the greatest need for the gospel is right next door, or maybe even in the next room. Our concern is not how far others are from us, physically, necessarily. Our concern is how far they are from God. 
But as Jesus shows us, you still need to go to them. You still need to be present. You still need to close that physical gap. So moving on, it's, the text says, There came a woman in, of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So now we see the purpose of his diversion into Samaria, which is to meet this woman at the well. And there's a couple, a few things here to consider. First, we're never given the woman's identity. Why is that? Perhaps John didn't know it, or perhaps he didn't feel it was important. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But it's ironic, because her lack of her true identity, that's at the very heart of this account. Second, I want you to notice that Jesus leads with his need, not hers. And by leading with his need, he invites her into a conversation she can't avoid. See, if she does, she'll be turning her back on a person in need. And we can learn from this. We can start, when we start a conversation with our needs, our vulnerabilities, as opposed to pointing out the other person's needs, we invite a true dialogue. You know, before accepting Christ, I often heard these words, you need Jesus. And I often, my response was often, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But when I heard, I need Jesus, that got my attention. That got my attention. Second, note that the woman, I know what Jesus does, that what Jesus does here is totally unconventional. It's radical even. First, he speaks to a woman, which in and of itself is a, is a major no-no for a rabbi. And he speaks to a Samaritan woman to boot. And she's apparently a woman of ill repute, as we'll see. And he asks her for a drink. Why would that be so shocking? Well, recall, what well, we'll see, is that he had nothing himself to drink out of. They would have had to have shared the vessel with the water in it. In these days of COVID, this ought to resonate with us. <laughs> what Jesus did was culturally worse than drinking straight from the water fountain at Planet Fitness. <laughs> but notice the result the result of his apparently irrational behavior is this, she engages him. In fact, it's because of the peculiar and daring nature of his request that she engages him. Jesus demonstrates for us here that in sharing the gospel, we're gonna have to, have to challenge some cultural norms. We're gonna have to ask questions that leave us vulnerable, and we're gonna have to ask questions and say things that might make us uncomfortable. Jesus answered her, the text goes on and said, if you know the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, so after having captured her attention with this strange request for water, Jesus now presents the statement that makes her think. Now, he could have simply said that salvation, the gift of God, is acquired through faith made possible by the Holy Spirit, the living water, who is sent by me, Messiah. But he doesn't do this. Why? Well, it's obvious. He didn't have the Romans road, and he didn't have four spiritual laws. They hadn't been invented yet, right? <laughs> now, kidding aside, the issue is that she isn't ready for that message. She doesn't know or at least believes that she needs what he has to offer. So Jesus leads her there through this, this, this metaphor of living water, and it's just genius. Think about it. She's come to a well, so she understands the concept of thirst. And she seeks water, so she has a notion of how to quench that thirst. 
And she knows an experience, so she knows and experiences need, and she's looking for ways to try to meet that need. But until she sees that her needs will never be met by what she seeks, she's not going to seek anything different. So she responds to him in the text. She says, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? So the woman here makes a couple of assumptions uh, that, uh, that reflect her doubt, as though maybe she's testing Jesus. But the funny thing is, her assumptions are all true. First, she assumes correctly that the source of Jesus' water is not the well. Next, she assumes, again correctly, that Jesus is claiming his water is superior. And in fact, we know it is. But then she does this interesting thing. She doesn't compare the water of Jacob's well to the water Jesus is offering. Rather, she, she compares Jesus to Jacob. Something's starting to click in her mind. This is about more than water. This is about the person connected to the water. See, her mind is, has always been set on the ways and the provision of a dead man. A great man, yes. A patriarch, yes. The father of generations with whom God made his covenant promise, yes again. But a dead man nonetheless. Her hope was grounded in a dead man and his well. And a dead man's well provides dead water, as Jesus points out. He says in the text, uh, Jesus answered her and said, answered and said to her, Everyone who, thinks of this, of this, who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor have to come all the way down here. So Jesus gets right at the heart of the problem with dead water here. It can never permanently quench thirst. You'll go back to it time and again. The relief is always temporary. What if, he poses to her, there was a water that permanently quenches your thirst? What if there was a water that so satisfied and filled you that you yourself became a well overflowing with it? The water from Jacob's well sustained her physically in life. But what if there was a water that gave eternal life, a gateway to a time? Well, there'll be no more thirst. Of course, Jesus here is not talking about actual water, but the woman doesn't quite grasp that yet. She wants actual water that will relieve her from ever having to come back to the well. Again, she's focused on the wrong, wrong water, and more importantly, the wrong thirst. So we will see that Jesus redirects her. But before I go there, I just want to point this out. Jesus doesn't try to scare the woman into salvation. Notice this. He doesn't say, drink of this living water or you will forever be condemned. Rather, he invites her into something better than what she currently has. The gospel he presents is a magnet. It draws her in. It's not a rod that drives her. That's the nature of the proximate gospel. It's inviting. It draws us in. That's the gospel we want to share. So he responds. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you are with now is not your husband. This is which you have said is true. Now, it might seem like Jesus is changing the subject here, but he's actually doing just the opposite. 
See, she can't lay hold of the power of the living water until she comprehends her own need. There's a void in her life that only God can fill. And she is desperately trying to fill it with something else, namely men. She keeps going back to that well. She has husband after husband, but none work out. Now she's at this point where she's not even going to bother with marriage. She'll just live with the guy. There's an important point here for us, though. See, this void in her life is common to all unbelievers. But what they seek to fill it with differs, and that's important. For her, it was men. For others, it's status, others, power, still others, maybe money. Some fill it with alcohol, others with drug, uh, drugs, others with pornography. And it's not always just about bad things. Some will just simply try to fill it with possessions. And others even with family members. But whatever that thing is the unbeliever tries in vain to use as a substitute for God, it doesn't work. It's an idol. One thing that is common to us all is that we're all broken in this way. We're all sinners with that void. In that sense, the sin that created that void is kind of like these, right? Sin is one size fits all, but it looks different on everybody. So Jesus takes time to know the woman's sin, to understand her need. He shows her that she's trying to fill the void she has with God through empty relationships with men. You know, he does something similar, interestingly, with Nicodemus in chapter 3, who had a different void, right? Diagnosing, diagnosing Nicodemus' need uh, for spiritual rebirth, he, he talks about being born again. He tailors his gospel. The point is, as Jesus interacts with people throughout his ministry, we see him first diagnosing the nature of their need and then responding to it. We need to do the same thing because everyone's need is different. And there's something else to consider here. Jesus skips a step in his evangelism that we cannot skip. He didn't ask questions. Why not? He knew. Because he's God. He knows all things. Little problem. We're not God. We are not God. We have to find out. Our evangelism cannot start with our mouth. Our evangelism has to start with our ears. At the heart of the proximate gospel, the gospel that draws people near is the loving act of listening. Listen to know. Listen to understand. Listen to love. Too often, we simply throw the gospel at people and say, there it is, seed planted. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, if that's your approach, you're probably throwing a lot of seed on hard ground. You know, to prepare soil, you need to work it. And to prepare hearts, you need to know them and understand them and love them. So if nothing else from this, just get this today. Listen before you talk. I guarantee you, it will not only change your evangelism, it'll change all your relationships. So the text goes on and says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and yet you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the, is, uh, the place where one must worship. And Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. See, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So now she tries to pivot, bringing in this worship question. But notice that in doing that, she goes right where Jesus needed her to go. She opens the door for him to reveal himself. She introduces this debate between the Samaritans and the Jews uh, regarding the correct place of, of, of worship, and Jesus responds basically saying, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. <clears throat> In her case, he notes that Samaritans worship what you do not know. And the reason that Samaritans don't know is because they only accepted, they only believed the Torah. They rejected um, all of the books of the prophets, all of the, all of the writings of the prophets. So they were ignorant of all the prophecies regarding Messiah. Unlike Jews, who should have known better, they couldn't have known better because their ignorance is due to an incomplete story. And once again, there's a lesson in here for us today in our evangelism. We need to understand what people already believe before we tell them what to believe. If we fail to do that, we may miss important barricades to the gospel, or even worse, even more tragically, we may miss important bridges to the gospel. Note also that the gospel Jesus proclaims here is proximate. The Spirit is where we go and goes where we go. It's not constrained to temples or mountains. It's not restricted to, to church buildings. When we worship in Spirit and truth, we go where the Spirit leads us. We share the truth in every place. On every mountain, in every valley, every road, every field, every nook and cranny of God's creation, we, we go and we bring the gospel near. So the woman replies to him, and the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And the door opens. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Imagine that moment. Imagine that moment. Finally, Jesus reveals himself to her. I who speak to you am he. Jesus reveals himself, but in this case, notice, he reveals himself only to her. He doesn't say to her, okay, now take me down to the town square so I can tell everybody who I am. Now he left it up to her to proclaim the good news. That's the sweet love of our Savior. In the same way, the gospel isn't meant to be spread just by one to many. It's meant to be spread by, from, by many to many. Each one of you who believes is the gospel story that someone needs to hear. But they need to hear it from you, not me. Sure, we can give them the gospel in church, but the unchurched aren't in church. That's the issue. That's the problem. That's why you need to bring it, folks. Today is about your job, not mine. Our story concludes with this. And at this point, the disciples came, and they were amazed uh, that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what are you seeking, or why are you speaking with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not Christ, is he? And they left the city and were coming to him. And so we have this moment where the disciple becomes the disciple maker. That's the plan. The Samaritan woman, whose name we don't even know, becomes an agent of salvation for almost an entire city. 
The text tells us this a little further down. It says, Now from that city, many Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So in summary, what can we take from all of this? Well, a few things. First, we're charged to go and share the good news. It's simply not optional for Christians. Second, we are, we are to go where people are. We are to make the gospel proximate by making ourselves proximate, whether that's in our neighborhood or across the world, wherever God is calling you. Be proximate with people. Come close to them. Third, as we go, we do so first to seek an understanding of another's first thirst, another's need. We start sharing the gospel with our ears, not our mouth, looking for whatever it is that a person is using to try and fill the void uh, in his or her life that only God can occupy. And from there, and this is the best part, people, this is the best part, we let the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting. Don't be afraid to share the gospel. It's not up to you to do the saving. The Holy Spirit will do it. You just need to open your mouth after you've opened your ears. He's in you if you believe, and if you don't believe, I pray today that you would invite him in. But he's in you, and when you draw near to others, so will he. He is the proximate gospel. Okay, so in conclusion, before you relax, I want you to know I'm not just here just to pass along some advice and send you on your merry way, okay? I have some challenges for you. They're easy but they're going to help you, hopefully, begin to put all of this in action. The first is super easy. You see this link? BurkeCommunity.com slash go. I want you to go there, and I want you to sign up for our missions and outreach updates. That way, we can make opportunities that we have at our church available to you so that you can go out and and, and effectively transform, help the Spirit transform people's lives. So go there and sign up for that. And the second thing, out in the lobby, we have a table with some resources on it. Uh, it includes this little uh, brochure called A Pathway to Paradise, the story of our salvation. And we've put this together to help you have a tool to relate the gospel story. It's not a process, it's a story. So t check it out. And, and, and now, don't use this until you use these. Don't use this until you've understood the person you're talking to, but hopefully this, this will help you a little bit if you're interested in, um, in, in sharing the gospel. We've also got out there uh, the, uh, these booklets. They say go local, go global. Inside here are all the ministries that this church works with, the missionaries as well. You can pray for them. You can look them up. You can get involved. But first, just come and check it out. So we have those out there on the table. Think about that for if you would. And finally... Um, the other thing that's uh, going out in the lobby is you'll see a table for VBS sign-up. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the most effective outreach efforts that we have at BCC. It's a chance to change the life of a child in our community. But we need your help. So please check it out, and as the Spirit moves you, consider signing up. All right, so lastly, recall my dear friend Mavis. Well, here she is again. And if you look in the background, that's not a green screen. She came at great expense and great effort, far more than I did, because she was a poor woman from South Africa, to visit us. She came, and she touched our lives. 
We had many great discussions, broke bread together, and it was wonderful. But the thing I want to point to you is that she made the gospel proximate to me, for me. See, when we make the gospel proximate, it becomes a two-way street. We enter into relationship with people. Our lives are so much richer for it, and my life is so much richer because of this woman. And today, we've got a similar blessing. Uh, I want, it's really pretty special. This is a treat. We have an opportunity to welcome a brother in Christ who's come all the way from Simba, I mean, from Kenya. His name is Simba. <laughs> Simba and his, group, uh, his, uh, his ministry, Christian Best Camps of Kenya, are one of our partners, one of our newer partners, and we've been doing great work with them. And so, Simba, we welcome you. We thank you. And uh, we have some photos that we want to share with you very briefly. And wonder, Simba, can, do you, can you share with us? This is your family, Yasmin, and tell us a little bit about them. Thank you for having me, and I'm blessed to be here. So this is my family. Uh, that handsome man there is Simba. <laughs> that was during my graduation when I got my master's in contextualized pastoral ministry from Lancaster. That's my wife, Yasmin Nalumva. That's uh, our son, Obed, is six uh, years and about five months. That's our daughter, Oana, is two years and four months. And then I have a son called Dan, who is four months. Thank you. Thank you. And next, I want to show you where Simba comes from. Simba, can you tell us a little bit about Kibera? So this has been my home for the past 34 years. I was born and raised in Kibra. So Kibra is in uh, East Africa, in a country called Kenya. In, in approximately 1.5 square miles lives a million people on less than a dollar a day in 15 feet by 15 feet square houses uh, made of mud and dirt. And this is where God called me. Uh, he got me out of the slum and he took me back there to serve my people. So that is where I'm serving. Mm, amazing, isn't it? We got two more photos we want to show you. These are, these are photos of transformation. What's the story behind this field? So this area growing up and until recently, is what we used to call um, the land of dry bones. So this was a no man's land. It separated the slum area from the affluent neighborhood, meaning that those from down here could not come up here because they would be perceived to be going to rob those who are wealthy. And those who are wealthy would not come from up there to down here because they would fear getting robbed. So the two worlds could not interact and that place in the middle was a dangerous place where people would get robbed or whatever. So, yeah, for the many years, this place has been known as a land of dry bones until two years ago. And what happened then? And then, the from, mm -hmm. yep. and then from there, by God's grace, we have a community center called Mugumweni Community Center. Uh, the ministry that I run started out as a Christian camp which was mentoring and discipling young men and women from Kibra. And to date, we have mentored over 13,000 from Kibera, and most of them have joined college, and some have come to work with us. So what you see now is a community center that is broken down into different places. This place you see with the swings, those, that's a children's playing park. Growing up, one of my dreams was to get a place where I can play as a child. So this is a place where they can safely explore their childhood for the young ones. In the middle is a basketball court. Many young men and women from Kibra, they do very well in school. Some are supposed to go to college, but because of corruption, they'll never make it there. Someone will take their slot. 
So we give them an extra skill, which is basketball, that the universities require. So they have no choice but to take them in. We have, uh, uh, now we have a music and dance academy over there. And I told Pastor Alec, if you can walk, you can dance. So we have, um, <laughs> we have a, a, a music and dance academy where we teach our children, because not all of them can do well in school because of the broken homes they come from. Some are coming from gangs. So this is a way of, for them escaping from that. So we train them how to dance and how to sing, and they have beautiful, beautiful voices. Then up there, and also there we get to show them movies. So from, like you saw, the center is down here, the slum is up here. So they are able to watch Jesus' movies from the comfort of their homes and other preaching and worship. So it's also a way of serving them. We have a community hall where we get to do trainings, pastors training, church workers training, which Alec and Elder Gordon have trained over 200 pastors during COVID in 2020. So yes, back, you did a good job. Um, then we have a community library because many of the children don't have internet or electricity. They come to do their homework there where we have computers. They come to read books right from kindergarten all the way to college. We have reference material. We have a baking project there where we are able to bake bread and bake over 400 breads every week. So our center is having an average of 100 to 200 people every day who are working in there. Amen. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That is yep. joining two communities that make proximity matter. And then if I may say something, uh, right now we have a need that is really pressing because Nairobi has been put under lockdown the new strain of COVID is really, really hitting us very hard. And you know the first place they will lock in is a slum. So right now people are locked in there and we have an average of 400 people showing up at the community center looking for food. And some of them already have chronic illnesses like HIV, TB, so they can't work. So right now that is a need. It takes about $10 to feed a family for one week, yeah. Because we, they eat a lot of carbohydrates and starch. So if the Lord leads you prayerfully and you want to know more about that, I'll be outside the church. That is a need that we have. And so right now we have a waiting list of over 1,000 families waiting to be fed. So I asked Alec if I could share. And being a gracious man, he said, go ahead, Simba, and I did it. <laughs> Thank you. Simba, let me pray for you. Father God. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for Simba. We thank you for Christian Best Camps of Kenya, Lord. We thank you for all the saints that are serving there, mm -hmm. Lord. And uh, we just ask that you pour your blessing out upon it, Lord. We ask that you consider, you continue to make this amazing ministry, Lord, uh, an agent of change in a community that desperately needs it, Lord. And God, we also ask that you go with us today, Lord, as we go from this place, Lord. Help us to ponder on our hearts how we might change our world through the light and the life that you've given us, Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you lead us. Thank you that you care for us. Help us, Lord, now to be that light in the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.